HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, we're celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hey, and welcome to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkell. And on today's episode, Ivan Orkin is a lifelong gaijin, an outsider, or, or actually is he? A Long Islander with Jewish roots who found his place and people in Tokyo, became a ramen master, moved himself and his restaurant back to New York City, still sometimes feels like a foreigner. Well, the Gaijin Cookbook, co-authored with Chris Ying, aims to address all that and make you eat more Japanese and be open to anything in the way that the Japanese really are. So from teriyaki to sukiyaki, okonomiyaki to tamaki, all the akis, I guess, Orkin hopes to bring his brand of gaijin cuisine to prominence from his home to yours. So welcome, Ivan, Chris. Um, Let's define this term. Well, first of all, do either of you really consider yourselves gaijins, or has that term changed over the years? I don't think there's much of a choice. This is not a this is not an option. It's a it's self-fulfilling not a box prophecy. Ge- no, it's just, I mean, we're, when we're talking in relation to Japan, there's the Japanese and then there's everybody else. You've given a couple different definitions of this word, though, in the book, and one of it is outsider, foreigner, and then something that implies uh, an intruder. Uh, what is the, you know, brevity of all those things? Well, I, I mean, <laughs> I think that, Foreigner or outsider is more of like a literal translation when like the connotation is that you're more of an intruder, right? Like gaijin is something people call you derogatorily. And Ivan has been called that for decades, probably well, sometimes in jest and sometimes with malice, right? And in, in the last few years, I think that Japan has truly internationalized. It, it's... You know, it's something you would have expected to have happened 30 years ago, but I think it it wasn't quite that quick. Um, so I think, you know, when I first went to Japan in 1987, which is, I guess, a really long time ago, uh, 32 years ago, 
Um, I think seeing a foreigner was still not that common. And I think, you know, the Japanese, I really don't think are, are I, I think it's more about liking to control things and liking to be able to, uh, you know, be able to give, let's say, a customer who comes into a store or a restaurant, you know, be able to speak to them, communicate them, give them the kind of service that they want to. And if they can't communicate, they're uncomfortable. But it is a homogenous society, right? And I mean, there's, it's really mostly Japanese people in Japan. I mean, what was the intent of calling it the Gaijin Cookbook? Was it to expose that, to, to push it into a more euphemistic tone? No, I, mean, I don't think we're trying to... I, I would never think that what we did with, with this cookbook could affect Japanese culture or Japanese perceptions of outsiders in, in that way. I think it was just... This book is... Ivan likes to call it kind of like a diary of the way he and his family eat at home and, and the... The, re- the fact that it's called the Gaijin Cookbook is because we're approaching it as truly what Ivan and and now I cook at home all the time, and the truth about who Ivan is and who we are writing a book about Japanese food is that we are outsiders. We are Gaijin, and, and so you know it's it's not so much a, a, a trying to do anything with that term. We're not trying to like reappropriate that term or anything, but just to 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 be very clear about the perspective that we are coming from, and you know, especially right now, and we talk about this in the book a little bit, this being such a challenging time for people to figure out how to share their cultural traditions, how to partake in other people's cultural culinary traditions. Um, we wanted to kind of add our, our voice to that conversation a little bit um, in calling it this Gaijin cookbook. You have these tenants in the book, and one of them's being open to anything, which is particularly Japanese, though, uh, you know, a lot of people don't understand that perception. Can you explain what open to anything means and why Western Yoshiku cuisine even exists in Japan? Well, I mean, the, the Japanese are clearly experts in uh, uh, borrowing, appropriating, finding things that they like, and then uh, bringing it into their culture. Sometimes it's more successful than others, right? Me- meaning that, like, they might take cuisine that's normally quite spicy, and then they dumb it all the way down to being almost sweet, and you kind of look at it and you go, oh, that doesn't look like anything that I, you know. But then there's other things that they'll take a schnitzel, and, and all of a sudden it's a tonkatsu, and everybody in the whole world can't eat enough of them, but but if you say, do you want a schnitzel? They'll be like, no, I've never had one. I don't, I don't really want a schnitzel. But if you say, do you want a tonkatsu? They'll be like, oh, I love that. I had that in a sandwich last week. It was so good, you know? So the um, it's it, it was interesting. And, and Chris and I had a lot of fun exploring this whole notion of yoshoku or, or Western cuisine. Um, and that so many people eat things in Japan and they don't realize that they're not Japanese. They're they're from somewhere else. Um, and then over time, they've sort of become uh, perceived as Japanese. I, I remember going to Yoshiku place uh, in Ginza, specifically for omurice. Um, and when you go into a place like that, it feels a little bit like a diner because it has an exhaustive menu, a lot of things that maybe seem westernized, but they aren't traditionally diners. Uh, you wrote a nice little piece in this book about the, the the vanishing diners of Japan. Right, and when I was a young um, young man and teaching English in Japan, um, I used to go to those places, and they were everywhere. Um, they've since been replaced mostly with family restaurants uh, run by giant companies, and they're similar um, but uh, uh, less homey. 
Um, but it used to be, you know, you'd go to this quote unquote Japanese diner where they, you know, you got your, your pro, I mean, it was almost like the, the, what is it? The Southern one and three, what meat and three, yeah. meat, yeah, meat and three, you'd, you know, you get your little piece of fish, you get some pickles, you get a little cooked vegetable, you'd get a, a little bowl of miso soup and a bowl of rice and some nori to roll it all up in. And that, and, 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 and that became what I ate all the time because I, I knew what I wanted. My Japanese was still a little, you know, wasn't great yet. And I was a little shy and I always, they had only 12 things. It was easy to choose. I could read the menu. And, um, but they were always very comforting. And, you know, I grew up in a family without food comfort. You know, my, my mother said that if they had a pill, she could eat in the morning and then not have to eat. That would be her dream. So that's what I was contending with. So, you know, a lot of my comfort food is that type of food, you know, a, a grilled piece of mackerel with a, a bowl of miso soup and some rice and a little pickle. And, and that to me is when I totally relax. Yeah, but this isn't a comfort food book. Like, Chris, from your perspective, learning this through the lens of Ivan, uh, what kind of cuisine, what, what is the umbrella of gaijin cuisine to you? <clears throat> well, you know, I think that there's this, this idea of having an outsider's perspective is really interesting to me because um, you can be intrusive as an outsider, as, as like that term implies, gaijin implies, is that you're kind of like bumbling through and causing a scene. But there's also something to be said for being a respectful and uh, admiring outsider like like Ivan has been and a student of, of this food for, for decades. And you see things when, when you have this like respect and, and curiosity where, you know, maybe people who, who have grown up eating this every single day don't see the exact same thing or don't see all of the, the angles from which you can value this stuff. And, and like Ivan said, like he, he would go to these Teishoku restaurants and, and be um, able to eat there for cheap as like a young post-grad college kid who like didn't know, you know, up from down yet, didn't have money and, and, and could immerse himself in that way. And, and because he was a gaijin, he went there and was able to eat there. Um, and that, and, and in return, those, those meals, those like formative meals of simple food, um, made him feel at home. And so like, you know, I don't think there's, the, there's like, if there's an overarching thing to this book, it's just, um, trying to, trying to look at, at these things that, that are, can maybe even be taken for granted as Japanese in Japan, whatever, from this outsider perspective. And I think that the interesting stuff about that Yoshoku stuff is, um, Japan has this reputation as being this closed off, very isolated culture. And so a lot of the literature and cookbooks about Japanese food are treated with this kind of unbelievable reverence and like, oh, it's this very precious stuff. Like you cannot, you cannot break with, with this or that, or, you know, it has to be done this way. And, you know, the, the full moon has to rise over Mount Fuji and, you know, like it, it's not that way. And like, I think to, to think that Japanese culture is closed off or they're not open to to bringing in outside influences kind of a disservice to like to, to the to the people there and um that was that was what was really interesting whether it's making ketchup spaghetti or or <laughs> things that are more familiar like well, tempura or anything yeah. ketchup spaghetti is the greatest thing it ever is. invented yeah. it is truly tell you, man. it's yeah. so good oh my goodness <laughs> i mean we'll talk about that towards but, the latter but, end of this i mean episode, I, 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 think, sure. I think simply simply speaking the gaijin cookbook the term gaijin is really just saying hey I'm a gaijin. I lived in Japan off and on for 30 some odd years. Um, I, w I was always held at arm's length, even when I was very famous and successful. I still never was totally slotted in. Um, 
and my, my book is basically a journal of how I've lived my life as a person very enamored of Japan. And, uh, you know, my family is Japanese. You know, my children are half, and my, my wife is from Japan, and, and my in-laws, and I'm very close with everybody. And, and I've just lived this very oddly. I mean, I'm, I have to say, I'm not in a weird way, but I'm, I'm, I'm sort of in some ways more Japanese than I am American in certain ways. In other ways, I mean, I'm a loudmouth New Yorker. I talk too loud, too fast, too crazy, and I can be a, a jerk sometimes. But but I but I'm in in food wise, you know, all the all the things that work for me in that respect, and also culturally, even even like Jewish, I'm very Jewish, and yet you know, in our house, like New Year's Eve is the more the more spiritual, reverential holiday than than Passover is or Rosh Hashanah. You know, it's 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 because I really understand it, and and it's so interesting that you know, a food uh, is a very important part of the culture, and 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 because food is so important to me, and I understand, you know, once you once you put anything with food for me, my interest obviously spikes. And it's easier for me to get my head around things when food is related to it. Well, it's this reference, which you've both now mentioned, uh, that also makes the term otaku so important. Uh, you know, the, the reverence to the craftsperson, to the shokunin who's making these ingredients. And do you think it's because of that depth that you also were able to write a book like this? Because not just any gaijin who just is an outsider there and experiences X, Y, and Z and comes home and cooks... Uh, can have the voice and the perspective and you know the the wherewithal that you have for this book well i think i think more than anything it's just that i've you know no matter what you want to say i've really spent the better part of my adult life you know living some type of japanese lifestyle so it's <clears throat> you know as far as otaku you know a geeky nerdy you know obsessive behavior um I certainly have plenty of that. I mean, I opened a ramen shop in Tokyo. I mean, I was I was a complete ramen geek, and I you know, and all my friends who ran ramen shops were geeks, and we did all the crazy geeky things to make the perfect bowl of ramen. But um, what's fun is that the book isn't. It's not stuck in that one thing. And what, and what Chris was saying earlier that you know there are a lot of books, and I think there's lots of really cool books about Japanese cooking out there. I, I wanted to write one with Chris that was a little bit more playful, a little bit more relaxed, and a little more real. And because at the end of the day, I, I'm, a, I'm a real house husband. I really, you know, I go home, my wife knows that I'm, I'm just like, like this little Jewish old lady. I'm I just like, really good at running the house. I'm good at like shopping and putting things together and cooking. And I come home and I'll, I'll come home at 5.45 and my wife's like, so what's for dinner? <laughs> yeah. so, so I'm running around, you know, I got, I got carrots and onions in the microwave and I got the, the curry box and I got, you know, and I pull out the frozen pork shoulder that I cooked three weeks ago and I thaw it and I make curry rice from a box and my whole family is thrilled because they love it and and i'm happy that i got real food on the table and i whack out a quick salad and and you know it's and and i'm feeding my family real food yeah i think that's the sort of <clears throat> important thing is there's so many there are so many terms to describe that otaku or like shokunin or, or I, i'm just gonna keep mispronouncing everything shokunin it's shokunin. two words mean uh, uh, this aspect of Japanese culture that I think um, so many Western cooks and chefs and, and you know, general Westerners appreciate is, is this crazy dedication to one thing, you know, whether it's ramen or soba or sushi or building houses without using nails or whatever it is. Like, this is the thing that stands out to so many people is this um, artisan 
dedication, but in our book, it's it's one section um, dedicated to four or five recipes that that really require a little bit more work than the other ones. And to, to Ivan's point, like it's it's only part of what it is to be Japanese or to live in Japan or or to be from that culture. Like not everybody is like that. There are people like the Japanese experience encompasses, you know, the same range as an American one, you know, like there are people who are busy and need to get food on the table quickly. And that's why Japanese boxed and packaged foods are so good because like convenience and quickness is really important. So yes, like otaku stuff is part of the book and, you know, we teach you how to, to make, uh, you know, gyoza and wrap them and do all of that stuff. But it's also, Hey, this is also, here's, here are six hacks on how to get like a really, really great bowl of curry on the table on the weekdays. And it, you know, involves braising some pork shoulder on the weekend and, and putting it up for, put it in the freezer and then, you know, microwaving vegetables to get them a head start. And so like that, that was a really important part for me was not trying to, to, to box in this, this culture as one thing and like not making it all about otaku or yeah and maybe dispelling the myths of or the fear of it being complex totally yeah and the fact is that i can tell you right here and now that if you buy buy five to seven things on amazon and i wrote this book with chris making sure that everything except for uh mentaiko was the only thing that i had trouble finding on on uh, which is the spicy cod eggs but that everything else was on amazon and and a lot of it's quite reasonably priced and if you have that pantry, and I, I made Mexican food this weekend. I got a bunch of new Mexican cookbooks, and I've been, like, playing around. I had a dinner party, and I decided to make. And I was like, oh, crap, my pantry stinks from Mexican food. <laughs> and I had to run out, and I had to. And, and then I was up in the burbs where I lived, so there's, there wasn't any really good Mexican shops. So I, I had to settle for some ingredients that weren't quite right. And, and, and so, I mean, if you want to cook anybody's cuisine or any new cuisine, then you're going to have to build a pantry. You just, you can't piss and moan about it. It's just what you have to do. I mean, in New York City, you have Katagiri, Dainobu, yeah, in, in Jersey, in, Mitsua. There, there's access to these things. Yeah. I guess it's, it's that fear of cookability um, because ramen got exported here. And people know instant ramen, so they can easily do that. Uh, teriyaki, even before that. What, what are the ideas that hadn't been exported here that you might have to convince somebody a little more of trying for the first time in this book? Well, Ivan and I have had a couple of long conversations in the last, you know, day about <laughs> this very thing where it's easy for us to forget the, the bubble that we live in. Like even uh, even if you can find those ingredients on Amazon really easily or, you know, I live in San Francisco, Ivan lives in New York. Excuse you, Ivan. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it's, it doesn't really represent everybody's perspective and we really want to share this with people who who haven't eaten at like the best sushi restaurants or haven't been to tokyo or haven't aren't, aren't deeply versed with japanese cuisine and it was interesting you know like ivan was i'm just gonna throw them under the bus like ivan was on the today show this morning you know talking about this book and it really the way that they talked about what he could and could not do on the show like don't don't do any no raw anything hmm. um don't it can't just be tamaki, which are, you know, like we, we have this awesome recipe in the book that like my in-laws now do every single week for a tamaki party, which is just the yeah. easiest way to serve like sushi at home instead of rolling everybody's sushi or I mean, forming everything. Taco like, Tuesdays all over. It's Taco yeah. Tuesdays with, yeah. with seaweed and, and sushi rice and, and fixings. And it just it was really eye opening to think 
about our own failure of empathy for people who are really unfamiliar with this and are uncomfortable with things that are unfamiliar to them. Well, but and but that's really the the whole one of the reasons the book and Chris and I discussed, you know, probably six months before we you know, pitched the book and got a, got a deal, we started saying, you know, we enjoyed working together before, you know, he got, a, he slowed down a little bit. He had some time, I had some time, and we started talking about doing another book together. And we talked about a lot of different ideas. And <clears throat> this idea came together that, you know, I would say that most Americans know Japanese flavor. Most, certainly not all, but people know that flavor of meeting and sake, a little katsuobushi flavor, like they just know the basic Japanese flavors. But, but I think for many people, the thought that they could, they could make something at home that tastes familiar to them, it's very frightening. And, 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 you know, they, or, or if they think sushi, they're like, well, I don't like raw fish. I don't want to have that. It's like, well, no, no, you don't, you don't have to. It's co- so cool. You can just, you can leave out the raw fish I, and you just cook things. And, you know, we do tamaki. When I was younger, I would do tamaki parties in Tokyo and I, I didn't have any money. So, you know, we got, we had one or two kinds of raw fish and then I would cook up some sweet pork and, and we'd have an avocado and some cucumbers and, you know, and we would stretch it. And, 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 it, and it tasted great. And, and so if you don't like raw fish, you, know, you, you just don't have to eat it. Actually, my favorite ingredient in the whole book, and I hope this gets elevated in everybody's pantry, is uh, sazukuri, the, the candied uh, sardines. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Don't, 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 don't hold your breath. No, I, I, but <laughs> I think it is about changing the perception. I, I did an event, um, I guess it was earlier this year, where I got sukadane from Aichi, uh, and we made sukadane egg and cheeses. And everyone thought it was just bacon because it's just candied and sweet meat. Right. So, That's a good point, though. It's like these flavors are not necessary. They're not <laughs> new. And you don't have to even be familiar with Japanese flavors. But like some of these things like candied sardines are super savory, sweet. Like it's stuff Americans already go crazy for. Like smoky. Like we love all of these things. Like there are universally loved flavors and this is just other ways to to tap into those things that we really really like and and the core you know a lot of the recipes in this book are based on like a very simple comp like you know katsuobushi soy mirin sake right maybe some sugar and like that, that combination in different proportions is just it's the whole know, book it's fundamentally <laughs> delicious it's the though. whole book and it's just i just i just dream for people i look at the end of the day the whole ivan ramen thing even is really more about it's as much about my desire to share how much i love japan with with the world as it is about just me you know being a restaurateur or me wanting to make money i mean you're making money you have to and 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 i and i enjoy business but I also truly love Japan, and sometimes I'm disappointed how uh, intimidated people are by Japan or how people... I meet very well-traveled people all the time who say, you know, their dream is to go to Japan. And I'm like, well, that's just that's just unbelievably absurd comment. You know, I mean, you've been to Paris six times this year, but you dream of going to Tokyo someday. I mean, it's just... You know, it's not like going, you know, to the Congo. I mean, it's 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 one of the world's biggest economies, and it's very easy. And people are just a little intimidated by Japan. And maybe I, maybe I need to make a Congolese cookbook next maybe to we dispel do. your prejudices about going. To I do Congo. not have any prejudice, but but I suppose going into the Congo would take a little more bandwidth than going to Tokyo. It wasn't you know? Here you go. Here we go. I'm just saying they don't call it the Congo anymore. Oh well. <laughs> Right, so I'm old. All right. Well, we'll talk I mean, about. We're in, we're in Brooklyn here, man. I'm just trying to, to what, keep what us we, on the right we, side of history what here. Do we call it? 
uh, Democratic Republic of the Congo. All right. So, Just so Congo. All DR, right. Well, we're we're going to take a quick break, talk about Heart of Darkness, and we'll be right back. <laughs> Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. Are you enjoying this show? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. I'm Luke Griffin, and I'm the host of Bushwick Podcast. Each week, we share the remarkable stories of how artists, activists, and entrepreneurs collide in Bushwick, a special Brooklyn neighborhood that's changing faster by the day. You can find Bushwick Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. And welcome back to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkill, here today with Ivan Orkin, Chris Ying, and the Gaijin Cookbook. And... I want to talk about, you know, how to make the proper pot of rice, sushi rice, how to have these tamaki parties, how to do the basics, the the fundamental things. But I, I want to talk about, do, do you like using the word fusion, uh, the, these latter recipes of bagels and sandwiches? And as you mentioned before, mentaiko spaghetti, where, where do those lay in, in the lexicon of being a gaijin? Well, fusion is a crap ass word i mean i just hate it because it's got in the 90s you know and no nobody understood the idea of blending cultures and cuisines they would call it fusion but it was often done very poorly and clunky and if you want to really talk about appropriation which i don't you, you know it's this notion of just not just not even knowing what the hell you're doing just grabbing stuff and mixing and and i i think that you know the the stuff you see there, you know, which is the whole book. It's things that have grown out of me just being me and making things. Some of the stuff I made up, some, you know, the bagel with, uh, with the shiso uh, gravlocks. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it makes sense. It's a little bit of a chef-y or idea. Or just like the Ayanori cream the cheese, The Ayanori too. cream yeah. cheese, which is really good. Yes. I think we might have done that. We, you know, we did a, uh, we did a breakfast pro- program at Slurp Shop for about six months. That was spectacular. It, it never really caught caught on, and we, we, we got rid of it after a while. But uh, but I did a whole bagel thing, and with the gravlax uh, uh, salmon, and it was it was really good. You gave me this amazing recipe for my book, Acid Trip, uh, all about vinegar, and it was a pickled herring uh, batera with acme smoked fish yeah. herring. And I thought at first it was just you combining your Jewishness with your Japanese, you know, uh, nuances. Uh, it's more than that. It's deeper. I mean, that works for a reason. And well, it's a batera. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I didn't make it up. They yeah. Did. I mean, it's a it's a holy Japanese thing. And um, once again, that's why to me, I'm very ambivalent about this whole discussion of me of like I just met someone the other day. We said I just love the way you you use your Jewishness and your food. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful, man. And I'm like I don't know, but it's like. 
I'm, I, I'll never call myself an artist because I don't really believe in that stuff. I, I see of my think, see of myself as if anything as an artisan or a craft person. I use my hands, mm-hmm. and but most creatives. You know, Chris, too, in his writing. I'm sure the more Chris reads, the more he reads something that's inspiring to him, then maybe some of that stylistically seeps into his writing or he writes something in a, in a phrase that he might not have written before. But as creatives, you get exposed to things and they creep into your brain and, and you end up... But it's not because you go, oh, my God, I love being Jewish and I love rye. I'll use rye. Yeah, now I'm rye. I'm a Jewish guy. You know, it's like, no, you just... You, you you start to understand ingredients from experiences. And sure, I, I ate a lot of rye bread when I was a kid, and I happened to like the flavor of rye, but, but it's more that I'm a chef, and I understand that rye has a lower gluten content than, than other kinds of wheat, and, and it made a lot of senses in addition to a noodle recipe, and that's how I ended up using it. And in the batara, it's the same thing. I mean, I mean you know, having pickled fish on top of seasoned rice that you press down and, and have this this little bite of, of, of compact sushi is something they've been doing in Osaka for a long time. But you have these references. You have these points in your life that you can draw from. How do you convince somebody to, have, uh, to, to cook a pot of rice, uh, sushi rice, who's never necessarily thought of that as something substantive as something you know that takes technique that takes time that takes patience like chris where do you draw from to write about cooking the perfect sushi rice well let me let me let me segue into that but i I would just say on the fusion thing like the the term itself like my, my my the difficulty I have with the, with the term fusion is like there's this implication that um, when you fuse two things together, they don't naturally come together. Yeah, there's this action true. to it. There's this like I've got to solder these two things that don't belong together together. Um, and the other problem with this idea of fusion is that it separates food that is quote unquote fusion from food that is not fusion when there is no difference. All food is fusion food. All food is the combination of other, like two different cultures, three different cultures, 50 different cultures coming together to, to make this one thing. So like, I don't object to the term fusion, except that draw me the line between what's fusion and what's not. And, you know, I say that and I say there's this, like there's this natural, uh, process to creating cuisine while at the same time, like you said, we're asking people to come out of their comfort zone a little bit and say, oh, I've never I've thought of rice as a thing I care about making. I've never cared about making the perfect pot of Japanese rice. I've never given much thought to the proportions of water and, 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 and you know, soaking rice first or, or whatever it is, the, the vessel I'm cooking rice in. And so, yes, cuisine happens best through these collisions through through Ivan absorbing influence uh and and whether or not he's consciously using his own experiences and and, and making these new things happen or not like it, it, there's this natural thing that happens but with this book we are we are asking people to meet us halfway to some extent to to give a little more thought to a super simple thing like rice. And that's why and it's the also showing recipe. them that like in our culture, right? In American culture, if I, if we were discussing bread, especially in New York, where I think bread and sandwiches are really important for most of us, no matter where you've come from, if you live in New York long enough, you, you kind of get into the sandwich culture and you know, you could wax poetic about bread. Anybody will just start talking about it and they get it. So rice is the same thing. Like rice in Japan and in most of Asia, 
you know, properly cooked, delicious rice is really important to people. And um, the difference between good rice and bad rice is, is profound, and, and, it, and, it, and it's bothersome when it's not right. But even on a more simple level than that, it's like we, you know, the, the recipes in this book use short grain Japanese rice because, like, that's what right. tastes better. Like, it doesn't, like, the, the same dishes on top of long grain jasmine rice just don't taste as good. Well, it's just and not like, Japanese. That's just like, well, it just doesn't, I mean, I, yeah. I think objectively it doesn't taste as good to have these these. No, these I agree. Well, there. it's because the Japanese have never used aromatic <laughs> mm-hmm. long grain rice. So, so just like yeah. that basic amount of thought that like, hey, you should have more than one kind of white rice in your pantry is like probably going to be an interesting revelation for, for most people outside of this room, <laughs> you know, like... That, that it matters. That's like, that's that's an important point. It's just that it matters. But that pot of rice, again, is so foundational that it opens the door for so many things, too, from, you know, simple onigiri to uh, ochazuke, which is one of my favorite ways to, you know, enjoy rice and tea during the fall time. Um, but then you have so many rice dishes. Uh, uh, Oyakudan, uh, you know, the, the parent and child chicken and egg dish. And we see these things as these singular, almost autonomous terms or dishes but really foundationally it comes right back to being able to cook rice yes and it's not that hard and uh you know i've had a rice cooker most of my adult life um so uh, you know and most people have some type of machine these days so you can pull off rice and those things if you if you youtube it um but you can even, I even talk about the knuckle method, you know, where you just, you know, you have one knuckle from the tip of your finger touching the rice to the, to the top of your first knuckle, the, right, the water should stop. This is my least favorite method that I've been taught since yeah, I was Yeah, well, a kid it depends too. on the size of your but hand, it, well, too. Well, I, I, you know, I, I, believe it or not, I didn't know this, Chris, for a really long time. And I don't know, I learned it not that long ago. And, but since I learned it, I do it, I do it. I mean, it's just, it's, when I do the rice cooker, I just go by the lines because I have a rice cooker. Yeah. But I mean, but when I make, when I make it in a regular pot and, uh, and, it, and you know, and if you want to get geeky, if you want to be an otaku, then I recommend you go out and buy one of those double lidded, you know, uh, mm-hmm. clay pots, which really you can tell the difference. Yeah. And it's, well, it's, are you, are you pushing people to go out and get a donate? Absolutely not. <laughs> no, because you know what? Look, I, I think that, I think that people know how how they want to be uh, be in the kitchen, and I think that you know our book by having an otaku recipe uh, chapter and by having all these different discussions, uh, there is an opportunity for people to delve in deeper and try things that are harder. But I think the point we also make is that hey, we we know that you guys got a lot of stuff going on, and I do too, and Chris does too. We both he has a little child. I have. <laughs> Two big child children that shouldn't be in the house, but they are. <laughs> and I have to feed them every day. And so, you know, and, and, and tr- trying to help people have Japanese flavors in their home without having to, you know, uh, uh, go take a six-week class. Sukune. I don't remember whether or not the recipe says sukune first or chicken meatballs first, but which way do you hope to present that to people and why? Well, we had hoped to present it as sukune first. And then chicken meatballs, but we were overruled. Yes. Um, which mean, is fine. Which is fine because to some extent, it's a little self-indulgent, right? Like if, if it's harder for somebody to get into the recipe because they have no idea what you're talking about when you present the Japanese name first. And again, I'm not talking about people who eat at a yakitori restaurant every week or anything like that. We're talking about the, the broader reading audience, like... To make it more difficult on them, for for our own sake, wasn't 
is, is maybe something I would have done six, seven, eight years ago. Um, I'm, I, I, we insisted, of course, on presenting both names. Like we don't want to like erase one over the other or, or, or show, but, but we just wanted to make it accessible. We want to like, if you're in, if you're intimidated and like it or not, the truth is that a lot of people are intimidated by cooking Japanese food at home. And we want to destigmatize that. Then like, it's, it's too self-serving to, to just do the thing we thought would be fun. Okonomiyaki is something similar too. I mean, it's a savory pancake. Um, what are the things that you myth busted or demystified? Uh, and then people realize, Oh wow, this is so much easier than I ever thought. I think the tamaki party. I'm telling you, I I think that's I think that's something that you know people don't even. I was explaining it to to one of the TV guys this morning on the Today Show, and it took me a few minutes to really explain it to him because he was like, no, 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 and I was like, and he's like, but I don't want to have to roll it, and I was like, no, that's why it's so great because you're not sitting there in the kitchen rolling after roll after roll while your wife and your friends are having a great time, and then you come out at the end of the night and everybody applauds. You're, you just put everything on the table, right? So tamaki, right, it's a hand roll, and, and hand roll meaning you fold it over and you have some rice. It could be vinegared rice, sushi rice, or, to tell you the truth, I never used to make vinegar rice. I, I always just set, the, set the scene a little bit. It's just like everybody gets a little stack of uh, squares of seaweed. Right. There's a big, big couple of big bowls, communal bowls of, of rice, whether it's been seasoned with vinegar or not, depending right. on how lazy you are. And then whatever fixings, you know, whatever toppings, cucumber and avocado and shiso leaves and uh, ginger and, you know, whatever raw fish that you want or cooked fish or your leftover pork from last night, anything that would yeah. go with rice and that's it. And like people just make their own tamaki. And I think like that is a huge thing that has like demystified sushi. Like I said, like my in-laws who are not Japanese... Uh, eat this every single week because they're like, this is crazy. We love sushi and it's amazing that we can do this at home. Now. But is it because of the elements that you, you just mentioned that go into that, the fixins? Or uh, let's take the Odin party because then you have terminology like, you know, chikua, um, satsumaage, uh, shirataki noodles. The, those seem a little more foreign than... You know, yeah, and we put that. So oden is. I mean, describe oden. Oden is is uh, mostly fish balls, fish cakes, vegetables, eggs poached in dashi. And in, in Japan, like you know, Ivan and I had a, an amazing meal in Kyoto, where you know each each different ingredient has its own little copper pot of dashi that it's cooked in, and you eat everything from these homemade tofu and, and fish cakes to whale or whatever. Uh, we put that we put our version of this in the otaku section because it does require a little bit of dedication and in this case it requires you to go to a japanese market and, and buy these things we're not asking anybody to make their own fish cakes but we are asking you to go to the store and and like push yourself to yeah. like buy and, some. and inquire and ask and look i tell you any decent japanese market has at a minimum a freezer section with all the oden uh, fish cakes and you buy you can buy daikon and and you know you can you 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 cook it until it's almost soft. You finish it in the dashi. It's the most wonderful. I mean, it's one of my favorite things in the whole wide oh, world. Oh, I love it. And yeah. I've always been told that it's just old man winter food. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, it, it is. It's so heartwarming. It's so hearty. Um, and it's not simplistic in that the things that you put in it are are you know, very well made. I mean, they, they come from Shakunin, the Chikua fish cakes and well, it just depends. I mean, you know, remember, or I'll, I'll, I will remind you that you can get a, an okay bowl of uh, Oden at any Seven Eleven from, from the middle of October until the middle of April. 
and 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 it's not bad <laughs> and you know so that's where you start and then like chris said we went to a place in kyoto where they made every single thing by hand and it was such an experience because everything we ate we you could tell was made by hand it was so beautifully prepared and the dashi was so clean and perfect and it was just so it's so interesting because the spectrum it's so broad you yeah. know um well i mean let me ask you this uh, the spectrum of the perfect onsen egg can you get that everywhere now that jamminess that everyone expects or is there perfection? Is there latitude to it? I mean, when you go out to a Japanese restaurant and you have that onsen egg, how good or bad can it be? Well, I mean, onsen tamago is an onsen tamago. I mean, once you know how to make it, it's it's basically, I mean, maybe we're talking about, you know, in Japan, for any of those of you who have been there, know that eggs in Japan are pretty spectacular and they're not just not quite as good in the States to being really pretty crappy. Now I'm sure there's other other countries around the world that also have spectacular eggs that I don't I'm not familiar with, but the eggs in Japan are particularly special. So in that respect, yes, in onsen tamago that you had in in Kyoto is probably going to be one of your grand memories, and I don't know if you'll repeat it. In but I tell people even in my in our first book, I said, look, man, I mean I'm telling you how to make ramen. You know, it'll get pretty close to what I make at the restaurant because I'm giving you the recipe, but. So I mean that's why the restaurant business is so hard, because you know there's so many factors and and or when you cook at home you have a fight with your wife your kids being a pain in the neck you know the power goes out I don't know what the hell goes on I mean things affect cooking. Well, what are the most inelastic inelastic recipes in this book? Well, here's here's how I think the progression should work for somebody. What we would hope would happen is, okay, maybe you've gone to a Japanese restaurant you've had onsen tamago you know you've had this quote unquote hot spring egg that's basically like a, a egg poached in its own shells is how I would describe it. And you're like, Oh, I, I love that. Or I love, uh, okonomiyaki or I love teriyaki or whatever, something, you know, and you see it in our book and they're like, they are inelastic recipes. Like you make an onsen tamago, like I haven't said, like you, there's not a lot of wiggle room. Like once you've dialed in, like how long it takes to cook this thing and turn out a certain way, it is what it is. But let's say, okay, I've learned how to do this thing. I've learned how to make these familiar things that are in this book and that are, are, are pretty, you know, black and white as, how, as to how they're done. Then you see, you, you, you trust us. <laughs> you trust that we've showed you how to make this thing. And then you're like, what is Odin? You know, like, I've never been to Japan. I've never had this thing. But, like, trust these guys. Maybe I will, next time I'm at this Japanese market, I'll go and buy a bunch of fish cakes and make some dashi and cook it and eat it with some mustard and daikon and, like, crap, this is amazing. Shit, like, uh, this is a, a delight. And, and like, that will open your eyes to other things. And maybe then, maybe you'll finally take that dream trip to Japan <laughs> yeah. and you'll find yourself in Kyoto and you won't feel so awkward when you see Oden in a 7-Eleven or at the nice restaurant. Like, now you have some basis familiarity. And, you know, it's not destigmatizing anything so much as, like, trying to just get people in general to be more open. To but it's experience. like anything. It's even for me. I've been cooking for almost 30 years, but then I'll I'll get some recipe that I'll find somewhere and I cook something that I don't cook that often, a Russian food, a Mexican dish, whatever it is. And I'll follow the recipe pretty close because maybe I'm not familiar with how it's made. And then when I eat it, I'm like, oh my God, 
this tastes just like that thing I had in Mexico. I'm like, I can't believe I just made this. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm no different. You know, I don't know everything. God, when I know everything, you just kill me. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just so there. I'm, I'm, we're all the same. You know, I mean, even, you know, chefs, there are things. I mean, a lot of chefs like to kind of strut around and act like they know everything, but they don't. <laughs> and, 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 and it's, it's it, to me, I guess, going, uh, continuing this with this theme that's, that Chris started, my dream would be for someone to pick a recipe, any recipe, and make it and have them say, oh, my God, this recipe really works. And this tasted like that dish I love that I had at the local Japanese place or that I had when I was visiting Japan and have them just feel that sense of accomplishment. Because, like I said, I still, to this day, after almost 30 years of cooking, when I cook something new and it tastes really delicious, I am just thrilled beyond I can't even explain it I'm just oh my god I'm like picturing myself I'm like I can't believe I made this this is so good cooking's really fun and it's very liberating I mean I started cooking as a youngster because my mother insisted I eat hungry man dinners and I just put my foot down and I said I'm not eating this crap anymore and I I liberated myself and being able to cook for yourself delicious food that you enjoy is the most wonderful feeling you know, I wish you could blurb yourself on the back of the book because that was like the most ring endorsement I've ever heard know, right? of, of some some someone liberated uh, myself yeah. from my mother. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, we'll do the mommy issue episode another time. And in the meantime, everyone should go out get the Guy Jin cookbook, and like Chris said, take that dream trip to Japan. You've been listening to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. A big thank you to Hearst as our sponsors, Music by Cookies and Matt Patterson Engineering. Cheers. The food scene is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org, or connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage, and thanks for listening. <laughs>